I'm wearing my Bond t-shirt. Bond, rebuilding the family by rebuilding the man. Rebuilding the family by rebuilding the man T. Rebuildingtheman.com slash stores. What is up, everybody? We are live on all platforms, it looks like. I'm going to have a guest today. We, have, we will have Jockle with us. J-O-K-L. Deep left Jockle. D-L-J-O-K-L is his handle on YouTube and Twitter. So stay tuned for that. We're going to have a fun show, I think. Talk to him at least the first hour. And he is open to taking your calls. He's sort of a liberal, I guess. And, but an interesting one. <laughs> interesting guy. Uh, so I'm going to get right started with him. But f- and, you know, after that, if we, uh, if we close out with him, if you guys don't want to talk to him, that's okay. And we can get to other stuff. You know, the border, the crime, the mess in the world. A whole lot of mess in the world. And some beautiful music. But anyway, guys, I want to get right started here. So let's get right on. With the show! One, two, three, four. Oh, it's the Hague Report. The Hague Report. La, la, la. Oh, it's the Hague Report. The Hague Report. La, la, la. My bag, our bag. I don't know what happened with that audio there. It came in extra loud for Hake, and maybe sound was kind of strange. But anyway, uh, thank you guys for joining me on the Hake report. Yeah, we're gonna have we're gonna have Jockle on the show. Let me let me let's get right started with it. Jockle, are you there? Are you there? Yes. Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. You're coming through well, and I appreciate you. Making the time and and trouble to talk with me. I've been wanting to talk to you for a long time, actually. Very cool. Yeah, if you hear um, some musical notes in the background, I apologize about that. But uh, <laughs> no we're, in, we're in an interesting location, uh, an interesting location. But we made it. We're here, and hopefully, no further technical difficulties. And uh, you're in the United States, are you? Uh, don't not Correct. to dox your location or but who- it's not it's not easy to do because I'm always <laughs> moving around um, about 2021 I started to just tell people hey if you want to meet in real life I will come drive to your house and I did that you know somewhere between 50 to 100 people you kind of lose track and then um, kind of branched out networking from there and uh, what I'm doing and right now is I'm focused on writing a book. So full time, um, you know, not not earning money right now, not working a job, but just full time doing research, writing uh, very seriously a book uh, tentatively titled History of the Dissident Right. Uh, so it's going to start really with medieval Europe and looking at theological, political formations and foundations up until renaissance enlightenment founding of america and then the bulk of it is going to be how did we get from a point where um the right wing was basically dominant to now a place where the right wing is 
And a lot of those mainstream right-wing positions are now considered fringe. They're considered extreme. Yeah. How did that change happen? Um, and how can we explain that? So it's going to be a work of history. Um, and maybe we, maybe we can talk about some of those themes today. That sounds pretty interesting, man. And you're in your 20s or 30s, are you? Yeah, yeah. People, I remember when I started my YouTube channel, people would be like, you're 17. You're not allowed <laughs> to talk about politics. You're just some dumb kid. Um, you know, I, I like to be a little bit mysterious, but people, people, I, I also like to see, if you ever have a girl ask you, you know, what's your astrological sign? I always say, guess, guess, and tell me the reason why you think it's that. So then I've heard things like, well, you're a Taurus cause you're so stubborn. Um, so I'd like to hear what people's impressions are of me and, and have them justify that rather than, you know, uh, project outward. And, and then uh, it's more interesting that way, I find. Yeah, I have sort of a limited knowledge about you. Again, I, I said that I've been interested in talking with you for a long time, but I didn't really know what to talk to you about. You're, uh, somebody DM'd me about you. Maybe you mm -hmm. debated somebody a couple of years ago, two or three years maybe longer years ago, and they gave me that tip. And so I've followed you on YouTube and Twitter, and I've seen you talk about debunking different things from the right wing, and I've seen you talk about sort of, I guess, philosophical things. And uh, it's been kind of interesting. It's been pretty interesting anytime I've... Uh, hopped on and checked out what you're talking about. Uh, what what are you, if you don't mind my asking? Um, well, I think of myself as a political philosopher. Um, the The term deep left is, you know, two parts. The, the deepness of it is trying to get past the superficiality that I think people today more than ever treat politics like a football game. And just like when your team loses and you start flipping over cars and setting things on fire, people get very upset about politics. People are very invested in it, but they don't have a deep understanding of it. And they're not even playing the game, to be honest with you. Just like um, if you're a fan screaming uh, in a football field, you don't actually impact the reality of the game. I mean, it's the players, yeah. right? Similarly, when we cheer for Trump or we hate Trump, really doesn't actually impact the levers of power directly. So power is very hierarchical. It starts from the top down. And if we don't understand that, this elite theory of power, then it's almost, I see it as a religious phenomenon. Like people are almost praying to Trump or that you have these witches who are hexing Trump, you know? Yeah. It's all this kind of cargo cultism of power where people want to feel powerful. They want to feel like part of something larger than themselves. And so they're cheering on these teams. Um, but there is a small percentage of people um, that, that I try to appeal to who are interested in understanding things and maybe actually figuring out, okay, what can we change? Can we change Washington, DC? Can we change our own local community? Uh, understanding how that works and what the history is, is going to help us prepare for the future because we're in the middle of revolutionary times. I mean, what we're seeing right now, yeah. we've never seen before. Uh, and we should get real about that. We shouldn't just ignore it and be apathetic to it. Um, but we have to have a way to interface with it that doesn't make us mentally ill. I think social media has proven to increase mental illness. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, how do we be informed? How do we be knowledgeable? 
how do we have an understanding of our cosmology? Cosmos in Greek just means order. So it doesn't just mean where are the stars, where are the planets, but it really means like, how is our world ordered? We all want to understand that from the earliest mythology to the present day. So I try to give people tools to understand the world. Uh, I talk about the tripartite class system. I talk about minoritarianism. Um, I talk about, you know, the, the deep left versus the deep right, as opposed to whatever the Democrat versus Republican football is at any given time. So I'm really just trying to appeal to a small audience of people because I know most people just constitutionally are not interested in philosophy. You know, you can try to encourage it, you can try to force it on them, but there are legitimately different, I mean, whether you think it's astrological or whatever, there are different personality types. And so I'm appealing to a very select group of people with a certain personality type who are introspective, who are conscientious, who want to understand things on a deep level. So most people aren't going to get it. I understand that. And I'm not for them, but for a small number of people, they find my work helpful. They find it enlightening and they also find it motivating because when the world isn't so chaotic and crazy and confusing, when you can actually make sense of it, then it's uh, a lot easier to invest. It's a lot easier to be motivated if uh, you have a, a surer sense of where you are, who you are and what you're doing. I've noticed that uh, phenomenon of screaming at the football players um even in even in my show in thinking about what to cover and thinking about how i uh interact with the news and arguing with the chat and callers it doesn't really affect anything like you said at least not on the national scale maybe it maybe it either dulls or awakens listeners or callers or myself when we're arguing about something but I noticed, for example, yesterday I was arguing with a, um, a, a listener and chatter in one of our shows on the JLP network about abortion, for example, and whether abortion decreased black crime. And I realized it doesn't even matter because the reality is abortion is happening and we're not going to affect it. And we're getting into our imaginations about it and arguing about something that doesn't even makes sense to uh to really bother with it's interesting to see how people think but other than that it's meaningless yeah i mean i think it's a form of wishful thinking i think if you go back to the earliest forms of religion you know the rain dance the rain's not coming so let's just put all of our energy and passion into wishing the power of positive thinking uh law of attraction stuff i mean that's just as relevant today as it was at the dawn of human civilization or even before civilization. So it's an inborn uh, bias that we have. I mean, there, there's probably some logic to it happens. So I'm just going to put a lot of emotion. quite well. You know, you want to reproduce. And so you just have this desire to reproduce. It's not that complicated. It's not, it doesn't take a how we interact with the world are based in our bodies. You know, I'm hungry. I'm thirsty. I want to reproduce.
study for thousands of years all the little nitpicky details of how does our democracy work? How do these corporations work? These lobbyists, these board of directors. I mean, the, the legal language, the amount of literally every corporation in America has its own set of bylaws and rules. And then there's federal regulation, state regulation. I mean, to really understand that completely would take so many lifetimes. And we have millions of bureaucrats. change. It makes sense from an instinctual level because that's what worked for us in the past. But things are so complicated today that we have to kind of humble ourselves and say, you know, if I'm going to interact with this behemoth, then I need to be strategic. I need to realize my position, where I'm at, what I can do. And maybe that doesn't involve, you know, screaming at Joe Biden or screaming at Donald Trump. Maybe it involves like looking inward at ourselves and then looking at our, our neighbors. And yeah. I don't mean that in a literal sense of the person who's next door. It could be, but, you know, in the people who think like us. So I'm trying to find people who think like me. I really do believe that the difference between conservatives and liberals is much more of a deep personality difference than having to do with the issues. I think, you know, liberals are very much um, you know, at this point, they're very much into education. They're very much into authority. They're very much into institution. Conservatives tend to be much more about intuition. They tend to be about what's familiar to them. They tend to be about, you know, if it, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. So there's a different mentality there that I think is deeper than the present day. I think those personality types, you know, high in hope, openness, low in openness are very old. And, and they probably, whether they have a genetic basis, an astrological basis, I won't speculate because I'm not an expert. I'm not a geneticist or an astrologer, but I can tell you that those personality types are persistent throughout history. And so just to understand on a finer level, like who we are, who we get along with, how we operate, what our position is, that's the attempt when I talk about things like the tripartite class structures to say, like, who are you? What is your purpose? And where do you fit into society? If we can't figure that out, then there's a lot of people who are engaged in this kind of transference where you go online and you're you're allowed to imagine that you're this player on a grand chessboard. Zbigniew Brzezinski has this um, book, the, the Grand Chessboard, American Geostrategic Imperatives. And, you know, I read that back in high school and you read stuff like this and you can kind of imagine like, oh, I'm. I, what if we attack this country or we invade that one or we make this trade deal? And it's like so many people are consuming all this content passively and imagining that there's some secret genius and yeah. they have the right plan and they know what the right thing to do is. Um, but I think a lot of that is, again, wishful thinking. And it's a product of an age of narcissism. Um, yeah. And in the contrast, if you go back to the feudal era, everyone knew that, I mean, 99% of people knew that they had zero power <laughs> and they could do nothing. And it was very physically obvious, right? When a knight That's funny. rides his horse down the street with his shiny armor, I mean, he's probably, you know, six to 12 inches taller than the average person. He probably has 50 pounds more of muscle. I mean, <laughs> you know, he could step on you basically with the horse. He literally could trample you. Um, you know, so one night versus, you know, a bunch of peasants or something, it just was no contest. Today, 
Now we have firearms, we have democracy, we have so many um, things that supposedly equalize the playing field and, and make it about, you know, we the people can just rise up and form our own government of ourselves. And a lot of those concepts, I think, are very historically useful at producing certain outcomes. But we have to understand how did those things come about? Did they come about simply because they're logical and right and true? I think there might be a component of that, but also because maybe those narratives, while they might not be entirely accurate, they are extremely useful if you're trying to overthrow an old order and introduce a new one with a new uh, set of legitimation. So these are the kind of questions that I get into. And um, I guess we can take it wherever you want to go. In short, what's your what's your impression of why the right or the whites or whatever you want to call us? I guess is me. I'm I'm involved with them. The Christians, the whites, the the pro men people, the conservatives. How did we become losers in our own country that that it seems like we built or our ancestors built? <laughs> Well, it depends on um, what type of whites and what type of men and what type of people you're talking about. So, you know, if you look at the richest men in the country, um, you can quibble, you know, are Jews white? uh, But, you know, even even putting that in uh, taking those people out of the category, you still have an enormous number of white men who control the vast majority of the wealth in the country. Um, But they're all kiss-ups. The left openly acknowledges that the right really has an issue and a problem with that because the right wing looks at, you know, an Elon Musk or a Warren Buffett or the Walton family and these various really rich white patriarchs. And they say, well, they're not for me. And they're supporting all this leftist garbage and they're supporting all this anti-white stuff. And their only response to that is to say these people are traitors. Sometimes they'll say things like these people are controlled by foreign ethnic groups. These people have been hoodwinked. If only we could red pill Bill Gates. Like if only (laughs) we could show him the 1350 statistic, then he would realize he's made a mistake and he would, you know, be on our side. And my argument is that these people use ideology, ideology cynically. I've gotten into arguments with nationalists who think that, no, Bill Gates, he really is a hardcore committed leftist. And I think in, in some ways he is, but I think he's a deep leftist. I think that he agrees with the left on a much deeper le- level than the superficial politics of the day. And so when he goes out there and supports, I mean, perfect example would be Harvey Weinstein. Harvey Weinstein prior to his fall, had a lot of public appearances and a lot of movies that promoted feminism. And yet we know behind closed doors, he was treating women quite poorly. So is that because he didn't believe in feminism and he was lying? Well, to an extent. But I think he also viewed feminism as a vehicle for creating the kind of culture that he wanted. That is, feminism is a means for powerful men to control weaker men. (laughs) <laughs> you know, if you're sitting at the top of yeah. the social hierarchy and you have access to all of the women, if you promote feminism for the lower class, the working class, etc., then it's easier to control those people. People have a hard time understanding this, but going back to those personality types, women tend to be more conservative. Now, when I say that, it's like, well, what about the superficial politics? Women are, vote more for Democrats. Yeah, but why do they vote more for Democrats? Do they vote for more, more for Democrats because 
you know, they're, they're better critical thinkers or because they are, you know, smarter than men or what exactly is it? I mean, I would argue that there's a consistent trend throughout history, going back to women's suffrage of whatever the dominant political and moral and religious ideology is of that time, women have always been more faithful adherents of it. When Christianity was yeah. dominant, women were actually more Christian than men. I know that's surprising, but a lot of the early, you know, the most fervent Christian movements in early 20th century, whether it's prohibition or whether it was, uh, you know, uh, there was a, actually an amendment or a proposed amendment to the Constitution to include Christianity explicitly in the Constitution. That was really led by, uh, I think it was called the NRA, not to be confused with the National Rifle Organization, but basically you find this consistent trend and up to the present day. Now, the dominant ideology religion has shifted away from Christianity and toward what we'd call liberal values, yeah. but the psychology of women hasn't. I mean, it's still basically, we support what we think is the dominant ruling social hierarchy. And that makes sense for women, right? Because, you know, uh, uh, biologically, um, women go through pregnancy, they aren't able to defend themselves, they require social structures to defend them and to support them. Whereas if you're a man, you're a little bit more independent, you're a little bit more mobile. Um, we see that in, in the animal kingdom as well with, you know, lions or something. It's like, you know, the male lion can kind of go from one tribe to another, he can kind of travel around and, and mix things up. But um, women tend to be more uh, social. And therefore, they have to integrate themselves with whatever the mores are of the time. So, I mean, this is a kind of a convoluted argument for most people because it's turning the meaning of a lot of these words on their head. Yeah, I follow and it, though. If you, you know, a lot of people I find can't get past the, the, the semantic shift of things. Um, and so you know, that has, I guess, a negative in terms of I just can't communicate with some people, <laughs> but it has a positive in terms of I'm communicating with people who can say, okay, he's using the word conservative in a different way from how it's usually used, but I understand the way that he's using it. I can follow the argument. It's kind of a filtering process where, you know, I'm never going to be on uh, Tucker Carlson or whatever on the, the mainstream media. You don't think so? Um, because they won't understand what I'm saying, but <laughs> I think the people who need to know will get it. Um, all right. Uh, guys, you can call in. 888-77-JESSE. We are on Jesse Lee Peterson's network. 1-888-775-3773. Uh, you have a video, speaking of the whites, called I'm Jewish and I Hate White People. Is that, was that, I, I, I forget whether I watched this video and I forget what the contents were. I don't get that sense from you. Explain, in short. Well, I mean, there are a lot of white nationalists and, and neo-Nazis and, and people who, I mean, Keith Woods, I made a video about him. Yeah. Um, I called him a liar and then he got in the comments and he basically I said, look, you know, Keith, I'm not trying to be your friend because you worship Savitri Devi and she worships Hitler. And so we're not going to be friends, but I'm going to make some substantive points in this video. And instead of responding to those points, he just said, uh, I don't worship Savitri Devi, but I've never heard of her. I've never read her books. I just like her environmental policy. And then I went and I pulled up the receipts. And of course, it was a very bad look for him. But, you know, he doesn't want to engage. He just wants to say this guy's a Jew. And that was all on Twitter. I, I don't 
you know, get in debates on Twitter. But yeah. I just saw this stuff of him saying, this guy's a Jew. Don't talk to him. Don't try to reason with him. Don't engage with these points. He's a Jew. And Jews hate white people instinctually and so on. And so I just kind of put that in the title as I, you know, <laughs> if that's what you want to believe about me and you don't want to engage with my points, you know, you can do that. I think that's I think that's kind of funny. Okay. Um, but yeah, I don't I don't. Um, I don't hate white people in a, in a literal, I see a white person, I start, you know, foaming with rage. But I do think that um, the people who associate with being pro-white and stuff like that, you know, I have a, I have a healthy antagonism with those people. And um, I'm not, uh, I'm not ashamed of my, my heritage or, or whatever. So it's kind of a tongue in cheek little like, you know, what do they call it? Agree and amplify. So I just thought <laughs> I like to kind of rattle the hornet's nest sometimes with those people. Um, are, are you, what are you? Are you atheist? Are you religious Jewish or what well, are you? I would say that, you know, so it's funny people, there are some people when I say I'm Jewish, they're like, you're not really Jewish. And then other people, if I if I would turn around and say, OK, fine, you're right, then they'd say, no, you're secretly Jewish. So, you know, I was not really re I was introduced to the religion of Judaism. I never really identified as a practicing Jew. Um, you know, I have that heritage, uh, but it's a secular heritage. And, you know, it's really actually the history of Judaism is really interesting because they don't teach it to you in school. And so you kind of have to do your own research on this. But, um, you know, Judaism had a, a revolution basically in the 19th century, where prior to that, you know, the vast, vast majority of Jews, you know, 99 percent of Jews were Orthodox Jews. They lived either in ghettos or shtetls. They lived in these very tight knit communities in Europe. There were legal restrictions on them. They couldn't own land. They couldn't engage in most forms of labor. Um, there were a very few select number of jobs that they were allowed to do. Uh, so it was a very tightly controlled community in the uh, 19th century. Actually, thanks to Napoleon Bonaparte, he emancipated the Jews for the first time. And therefore, they had all of these freedoms. Also in America, they, Heim Solomon helped finance the uh, American Revolution. And in America, because they were able to join Freemasonic lodges, George Washington actually was like, well, you're my fellow Freemason. Want to help fund this revolution? He said, sure. So in those two cases, you started to see the opportunity to integrate or assimilate into broader European society. And there were some Jews who just went all the way and they said, you know, this religion is terrible, but we still have a national identity. We still have an ethnic identity. And really, you've seen kind of this bifurcation and then a filling in in the middle of you have people who are called conservative Jews. They're neither orthodox nor liberal. Then you have uh, people who are Jewish, like you have the Marxist tradition, right? You have then within the Marxist tradition, the Trotskyite tradition. Then you even have splintering there, right? So from the neoconservative movement, right? So there are a lot of yeah. these um, little splintering sects, just like Protestantism has a million different little churches, Judaism also has that. Um, and it's kind of esoteric and it's kind of, you know, it's an interesting history to go into. But, you know, I I think I come more from that tradition of like a Justice Brandeis or Felix Frankfurter or this assimilationist secularist tendency. It's not really attached to the, um, you know, religion. I mean, I would look at the Torah in the same way that, you know, a, a not necessarily Christian, but maybe a secular person would look at it as like, oh, this is an interesting document. 
but you know, I don't view it necessarily as the authoritative word of God or something like that. Religiously, I've spent um, the last couple of years doing an in-depth step, in-depth study of the Vedas. Um, well, specifically Bhagavad Gita, Mahabharata, and Ramayana. And um, I think those are very important because they give us um, theological arguments outside of the Judeo-Christian tradition. But you can see a lot of points of intersection. Um, but they are much more scientific, I think. If you look at um, the Judeo-Christian tradition, a lot of it is extremely historical and a lot of it is extremely populist in the sense that it's trying to convey a message that everyone can understand. Whereas when you're looking at the um, Vedic tradition or the Hindu tradition, broadly, oh, is that what that, that is? term is a little bit difficult it, to use. It's it's much more scientific, I guess I would say. You you ref, you mentioned this, the thing that you just mentioned that you're getting into. Where does that come from? Did you say that it was... The you, Vedic you tradition? Yeah. What is that? Generally, what people use the term Hinduism. I don't like okay. the term Hinduism because it's the term Hindu is just derived from the Indus River. And, you know, Hinduism just broadly refers to any religious tradition out of India. But there's a lot of different religious traditions. Some of them worship um, what in the Vedic tradition would be a demon, the demon Ravana. There are certain sects and churches in India that worship Ravana, you know. So it's a, that's. India is very diverse, but the Vedic tradition is actually a canon of sacred texts, including Mahabharata, um, Ramayana, the Upanishads. Like it's a specific canon, just as the Bible has a specific canon. So it's actually a group of books you can look at and say there's a consistent thread, there's a consistent philosophy. So that's what I've been studying the past couple of years. A, a year ago, you had told me that you were into the book, The Power of Now, or you were reading it, and it was very interesting to you by Eckhart Tolle or whatever? Correct. Yeah, yeah. Is that related uh, definitely, to that? Definitely. Yeah, I mean, that book um, was interesting at the time. Um, I haven't been getting into so much of that recently, but I mean, he, the way that he communicates and the way that he differentiates different parts of the ego I think show this connection. I mean, first of all, I, be, I believe that Freud derived a lot of his ideas from Nietzsche and Nietzsche himself was explicitly writing, you know, if you actually read Nietzsche, he says, I'm responding to the English psychologist. So Nietzsche, first of all, is not a philosopher. He's a psychologist. That's a basically a distinction that most people don't make, but I think it's an important one. And, you know, Nietzsche himself is getting a lot of his information from the Orientalists. So he studied Greek, he was a philologist, but he was also really interested in these Orientalists who are simply Europeans who are studying translations of Buddhism and Hinduism. And that whole tradition uh, contains within it um, a lot of similarities with Platonism in that it differentiates different parts of the, the soul and the you know, what in Freud, he calls the ego, the id and the superego, that's there with Plato, okay? And that's there in the Vedic scriptures is that you have uh, a tripartite soul and that, you know, we need to differentiate between these things. So what Eckhart Tolle does is he tries to communicate that in a very, very simplistic language without requiring that you know all that tradition, sort of an uninitiated person. He's like, look, you have this thing called a pain body 
and it literally feeds off pain, you know, and it feeds and the more attention you give it, the bigger it's going to become, the more it's going to consume your life. But you don't need to pay attention to it that and, and you don't need to go into your mind. You don't need to figure it out intellectually. You don't need to go into your body and fix it emotionally. But actually, you can go to this third person, which is this pure consciousness, this observer. And you can identify with that rather than identifying with your pain and your suffering in the narrative of the ego, this martyr complex, this victimhood complex of, oh, I was hurt in the past. I was traumatized. And it can be big. It could be something terrible that happened or it could be something small. You stubbed your toe or someone made fun of you or whatever. Um, but he really focuses on saying, you know, and he had an interesting thing. I think it was um, referencing like Martin Luther King Day or something. He said, you know, yeah, there were terrible things that happened, but we're not going to, um, you know, fix things by just reveling in our pain. And I thought that was very interesting. I think actually, if you deeply listen to what he says, he has a he has a pretty strong message that contradicts a lot of the narcissism of our times. Nice. Um, so I still think that he has legitimate things to say, but I haven't been, you know, uh, continuing a, a Tolian practice or reading his book every day or something like that. Some people do that, but I think he's <laughs> worth reading. Yeah, right on. Um, I have some super chats I want to read before before too long, so I'm going to get right to them. Oh, man. Uh, let's see. Evil is still real says, after all my warnings, this is addressed to Hake, about making your show G-word, A, you have this guy on. Good move. That sounds sarcastic. See, Kyle. Oh. <laughs> I disavow this. And then he says, this guy needs a something and a something. And I can't, I can't read that, man. Evil is still real. And he says that well, he makes the claim that 1944 uh, was a great year, and it sounds like something that would you might understand, but I, I'm going to pretend I don't understand it. Uh, DJ Onpa says, 0% chance Hake's guest is more beta than Jesse's. JLP just had a guest before me on his show. Gee whiz, you proved me wrong, Hake. Jaw 2024, that's my initials, James Anton Hake. Um... Do you want to get to a call here, uh, Jockle? Sure, yeah. If we have a call on the line, let's let's try it out. All right. Sounds good. Frederick is in Los Angeles, California. Frederick, thanks for calling, man. You're live with Jockle, J-O-K-L, D-L-J-O-K-L. Good morning, Hank. Good morning, Jockle. Hey. How's it going? Going well. All right, all right. I want to speak with Jockle for a second. Um, He sounds like he's... A little bit all over the place where you can't really pin him down on a religion, so he's an intellectual. I want to ask him, does he know about Maya? <laughs> oh, Maya. Yes, I'm familiar with the concept of Maya, yes. Yeah, it sounds like you're, you're quoting Maya at the beginning of the Hindu um, religion with the chakras and all that being in touch with your body and ka. Why don't you preach more about the beginnings and what the furrows preach where the plagiarism starts. Do you believe that's where the plagiarism starts? You know, it's an interesting question of, um, is there a relationship between the Vedic religion and... How do you spell that? Vedic. Uh, V-E-D-I-C. Vedic. Okay. Um, 
Yeah, so it's an interesting question, and I don't have a, a definitive answer for you. Um, you know, I have some hypotheses about where early civilization comes from that's neither Egypt nor the Indus River Valley. I think there's indications that um, about 8,000 years ago, the Sahara was green. It was not a desert, um, that the climate has been changing prior to the Industrial Revolution and that there were civilizations. Um, we see indications of that at Nabta Playa. That's N-A-B-T-A-P-L-A-Y-A. Nabta Playa is a site in Southern Egypt um, next to a dried up river where we see some of the first megalithic structures. And this is way before Stonehenge. This is twice as old as Stonehenge. Um, and it's actually logically. How, um, how do you think civilization been around? Like Noah's Ark, um, around about time frame. Because yeah, a lot of people just, think it's only been like 8,000 years or 6,000 years. 4, 000, how, how many years do you think Adam and Eve's story been created? Yeah, that's a good question. It depends on how you define it. I think that um, if you define civilization as necessitating agriculture, then you could say 10,000 years. But I think if you say that um, it's any settlement of people, I think there's indication that pastoralists and fishermen were able to create cities of up to 40,000 people. So I think it's possible that um, the remains that we see of cave paintings and um, hot and top figurines uh, are actually indications that there were settlements and perhaps made out of wood rather than stone. And if that were the case, we wouldn't have the remains of those cities. If you build a Tokyo style city full of uh, wooden buildings, there's no way we're going to have any indication of that. So they, it could be as old as uh, 30,000 years. And I'm open to possibilities of older civilization than that. Do you know about Yaku? Okay, so why do you why do you just throw away anthropology and and DNA testing of skeleton and history? Like you don't believe in that? Okay, I'm getting two questions here. One of them's <laughs> about Yaku. One of them's about throwing away genealogy. I was not Yaku. This ain't about Yaku. This <laughs> is about no. Nah, this is about Lucy. Oh, Lucy. You said you okay. don't believe um, um, anthropology. Yeah, anthropology. Yeah, I mean, as far as I know, um, Lucy is, you know, a, a human skeleton that we found in Africa and uh, is indication of human remains. I don't know that the the presence of human remains. I'm saying, alone where do you get your evidence to refute that? Well, I just don't see the evidence that. Lucy was part of a civilization. I think Lucy is is an evidence of human remains, but I don't think the presence of a human body is the evidence of a civilized culture. Boom, Frederick, in your face. No, because I mean <laughs> that Y chromosome is in every human being on Earth, right? Right. So you could say that we're all descended from Lucy, but that doesn't mean that Lucy had the same culture and civilization that we do today. So culture and civilization is a mimetic evolutionary process that starts but from... But whatever race that came through Lucy cultivated civilization, right? Um, yes, but to say that uh, Lucy was a modern day African person, I think is a little bit deceptive um, I'm not saying way. she's a modern-day African person. We know she was an African person, and she was the cultivator of civilization eventually. That was hundreds of thousands of years ago, not just 10. 
Okay. Um, yeah. I mean, okay. Really, okay. Okay. Now, now, when we were building the pyramids and <laughs> the monoliths, you were not building any in. pyramids, man. Anyway, go ahead. Go ahead. Hey, I'm not even talking to you. I know, but this Look is my show. I can, you get. I can get rude. It's my show. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, nah, go ahead. I'm gonna let him talk. What was he saying? Man, I love, I love, uh, I love that you guys. He, are don't, he don't have a definitive point. He's standing on. I think all cool. over the place. You guys should build more My yacht, and he's <laughs> taking a buying car to Trinity outside uh, setting a roof. You know what I'm saying? It seems like he knows it all. He he picks up what he wants to pick up from, and and he and he acts like he's an intellectual, but he's just living life and agreeing with everybody. That's what Alexander the Great did when he went around and conquered everybody. He said, "Your guy's my guy." You can keep them. Just hold this flag up and say, we own y'all. And he went around saying, your guy's my guy, yeah. And then he put his wife for Ptolemy, um, Ptolemies in a place, and they started acting like they were pharaohs. And they came up with Serapis to say, Jesus, he knows all this, don't you, right? Right? What do you think about What do you think <laughs> about the presence of the R1D Apple group in ancient pharaohs far prior to Alexander the Great? You say what? What do you think about the presence of the R1B haplogroup in the line of pharaohs prior to Alexander the Great? Yes, it's in it's in West Africa, North Africa, Morocco. I already know where it's a dark purple haplogroup, and it shows you where it's at on the map. And they were African. Do you agree that they were African? What makes what makes that haplogroup dark purple? Is it because you saw it dark purple on a map? No, somewhere? they show you they show you where they were located on the map. <laughs> Who I don't shows you? Who shows no, you? I'm not saying they're dark purple, but as people, I thought that's what I'm you saying said, okay. the location. Okay. Yeah, I mean, look. Where do you think they're I'm from? Totally, I'm totally open to the idea that um, you know, black you're open people. to a lot of ideas. Hold, let him finish his point, man. I'm to okay. I'm totally open to that idea, but I'm not like doctrinally wedded to it. Um, and I think that I'm I'm less concerned with the skin color of who the people who started civilization were because I'm not interested in like proving that I'm good enough to be civilized or I'm not good enough or these people are inferior, these people are superior. I'm just not. You're just gonna take it and run with it without committing to a religion. I understand. I respect that. As long as you know okay, the truth, cool. and once your heart's lighter than a feather when you get to heaven, if it's heavy and you feel it on your conscience that you've been a fraud, you know where you're going because that's where the concept of heaven and hell came from. You have a good day, Hank. Thank you, Frederick. Love your show. Appreciate right. it, man. All right, bye. That was interesting. So, uh, yeah, somebody in the chat asked about Yakub. I don't know how you pronounced it, but do you want to respond to that? Uh, I mean, as far as I understand, Yakub is a, what is it, a um, nation of Islam theory that there was a black scientist who created white people in the Caucasus Mountains. I think that's pretty cool. I mean, I'm kind of in favor of that. Um, if it were true, that uh, would kind of make white people like the, I don't know, like the Terminator or something like that. <laughs> yeah. this, this creation that's uh, like a race of super soldiers. I don't know. It sounds kind of badass, but I don't think it's it's that popular. So I don't accept it, but it's it's a nice fantasy, I guess. Okay. Tell me about Oliver Anthony. You brought him up as a possible thing mm -hmm. to talk about. Who is yeah, Oliver Anthony? Of, yeah, I mean, I don't Because I haven't talked about him yet. 
<laughs> right. Oh, you have. That's funny because he's. I mean, he's everywhere, man. I know. Got, I, I'm so. familiar somewhat, but yeah, explain who uh, he is Rich, to the audience. Right. So he came out with this song, "Rich Men North of Richmond," and it instantly got these millions of views. And that's always an interesting phenomenon to me when it's just like I'm just a humble YouTuber and I'm getting millions of views. It's like, you know. I'm very skeptical of the idea that we have this neutral algorithm and that, you know, popularity is just an accident. It's just whatever people like. I mean, I'm um, related by marriage to the people who started rap music. And by the way, they weren't black. Um, you know, music producers are very important. And the function of the producer in promoting certain artists and not others is still relevant today in the way that social media um, popularity occurs. Um, so all of these people are sort of hand selected. And I think Oliver wow. Anthony is, is one of them. Um, but putting kind of the conspiracy theories aside, I'm surprised to hear you uh, say that. Yeah. Interesting. Well, I mean, it's just, it's just a fact, you know, right. and that's, that's part of my worldview is just that, um, <laughs> you know, culture is not something that's organic from the, Oh, it's just whatever we like. I mean, there's so many different talented musicians and I've met yeah. them who will never be popular, who no one will ever know just because they don't have the right connections. And that the stuff that you watch on TikTok, the stuff that you watch on YouTube, most of what is popular is chosen by some board of directors, by some producer. And again, I have personal anecdotal experience with these people, but you can just read the publicly accessible history on Wikipedia to know that whether it's the Beatles, whether it's Elvis, whether it's the Jackson 5, I mean, all of these are created not of people's, you know, a popularity contest among people, but they are shoved in front of the people and through repetition, people become familiar with them and they like them. doesn't mean they're not talented, but a lot of people are talented. And I say right. the same thing about Oliver Anthony, the kind of themes he's putting out, it's totally victimary. It's totally, you know, these guys control everything and everything sucks. And then it's yeah. just like there's so many weird, contradictory things, but that's the state of the Republican Party is that on the one hand, they're like these free market anti-welfare people. But on the other hand, it's like, oh, poor me, I'm a victim of the establishment. So, you know, I don't think there's really a, a well-grounded, philosophical, like coherent message being put out there. It's kind of, uh, you know, just a conglomeration of different complaints coming from different you know, the libertarian tradition and then the, the kind of like the rural tradition and the populist tradition. Um, and it's being put out there. And then you see the um, responses and you see the pushback. Right. And there was something that he had like an anti-Semitic playlist on on YouTube. <laughs> and that oh, was wow. a big deal. Uh, yeah, it was something about like connecting. I don't really want to describe what it is out of, uh, you know, we respect YouTube and everything. So I'll just say it was some terrible thing. But anyway, uh, you know, there was that showing up. And then there were all of these uh, tweets he was putting about, about I'm not left or right. I don't really support Trump or Biden. I'm like this neutral guy. And he was getting all of this um, support from people and you go, you go in the top YouTube comments and it's interesting. Like I was, I think the top YouTube comment when I checked, it was like, you know, I'm a black man, but I work this industrial job and he's exactly right. And we need to all stand together and unite as working class people. Yeah. And, you know, I just think that message is 
fundamentally flawed. I've seen a lot of different presentations of it, um, but I just don't think that has ever worked historically that um, even Marxism, which is the original kind of working class ideology, right? We're going to get the proletariat together, workers of the world unite, we're going to take over. That still has actually never happened, right? The people who actually take over are people who have most of the times never worked a job in their life. Like Stalin was actually trained as a priest. Huh. You know, funny enough, that's his educational background. You know, Lenin, Trotsky, these were intellectuals. And then they actually became bank robbers and then later military leaders. And, and that's really how they took power, not by, well, we all work a union job and we're just going to organize and get together. I mean, that might be a legitimizing ideology uh, for a new system of power. But, um, you know, working class people in the Vedic system, there's a breakdown of different roles of jobs in society. Now, uh, the laws of Manu kind of make these in her, into hereditary positions that if your dad was, you know, a soldier, you're going to be a soldier. If your dad was a tradesman, you're going to be a tradesman, that kind of thing. But the, the description of the jobs in themselves need not be hereditary. And, you know, modern scholars like Prabhupada basically say, you know, this is a description of your position in society. It's not a description of your heredity or... You know, you're not stuck in this position because that's who your dad was. Um, so basically, the, the Vedic term is shudra, which means someone who is a, a skilled worker. And that's differentiated even in modern India today from Dalit, which is someone who's basically doing, uh, you know, a street sweeper, someone who's doing completely unskilled labor. Um, and a, a shudra would be a union man. It would be a plumber. It'd be an electrician. It would be you know, a lumberjack or something like that. And those people have never led society traditionally. They've never created revolutions. So whenever you hear people engaged in that kind of like working class ideology, I'm always skeptical of that. I'm always asking, you know, are these people buying their own BS or is this actually a cynical ploy to control these people by making them feel like they're in charge? Yeah, we represent you but it's actually being redirected towards something completely different. That reminds me of uh, those, these supposed working people who become politicians, like Joe the plumber who died recently, who confronted uh, Obama 12, 15 years ago, something like that, about the situation of working people and businessmen. And he became a politician and a lot of these working people are becoming politicians now, and they're not very effective politicians. So they're just kind of like, it's like this fake, oh, feel-good story. Oh, we finally have one of the people running the show, and they become just as weak and disappointing as anybody who's, who's up there in politics. Mm. With uh, Oliver Anthony, my impression of Oliver Anthony was... He had this, he came out with this song, um, working all day for bogus speech pay, just to clean it up a little bit. And the Richmond, north of Richmond, which I guess, I don't know geography, but I think that means the D.C. politicians and governing classes are, Richmond, north of Richmond, are all meddling in our lives and want to know what we're up to. And they don't think that you know, but I know that you know. And it's a darn shame. And you're right, it is a bunch of complaining. 
and it does sound sort of vict- it does it's total victimhood um yeah it, it romanticizes being a victim and yeah. there's no path to victory there's no path to success there's no path to betterment it's just we're victims because of these basically our daddy in washington is is being bad to us we're abused children and there's nothing we can do about it other than complain and maybe burn the house down and maybe lash out. That's the only um, really implicit call to action is we should drop out of the system. Maybe maybe we should do something radical or extreme. Maybe we should um, get violent about it. I mean, because there's no productive prescription of, you know, maybe we should become entrepreneurs. Maybe we need to start a business. Maybe we need to start a new religious movement or a church. Maybe we need to turn toward God. I mean, there's nothing, I don't see anything about Jesus in that song. No. So it's like, my question is what's, what is the answer other than complaining? And I see it on the left. I see it on the right. And it seems like a slave mentality. I mean, you, you actually have old slave songs that are like, we're slaves and there's nothing we can do. And like, you can True. look back at those old songs and be like, what's the difference between that and this? Yeah. He reads from the, I saw a clip of him reading from the Bible about God will put you guys on top again. Cause you're righteous or something like that. Mm-hmm. And so he's not, I don't think of him as, I just think of him as sort of young, young and, and basically, uh, uh, well, I call him a liberal because I call all musicians liberals, a liberal, silly sort of musician who's trying to sing about life, and he's mm-hmm. relatively young and naive. That was my impression of him. And it's, inter- it's interesting, too, because he's kind of like the, uh, the people whom you talked about, the losers, if, I call them losers, um, among us, who, uh, what was I going to say? He's... He's uh, talented. He doesn't know what he has. And man, I lost my thought. But basically, the, it's, it's defeatist. And he's one of the losers who's semi talented but doesn't really know what he's talking about. And um, not going to really affect anything but to keep the people asleep. It's all like feel good mess. Kind of like what we were talking about with the complaining about shouting at the uh, football players, I guess. Oh, yeah. No, it's it's the exact same thing of, yeah, you know, some people interpreted it as this is a let's go Brandon style song. Yeah. And in that vein, yeah, I mean, that political slogan is just so silly to me. And, yeah. you know, it, it's not to say that if we go back in the annals of history, we can't find really vicious political attacks. I mean, if you go back to the, um, the 12th century, you can find these monasteries where monks from competing factions of Pope and anti-Pope would just say, you know, you guys are engaged in necromancy and you're evil and you're doing all these things. You know, so it's not to say that polemics haven't been used, but I find like, let's go, Brandon. It's just so lame. Like if you're going to be polemical, like, I don't know, say something bold, like say something powerful say something substantive, but the fact that that's become a conservative slogan, it really does sound like a sports cheer. It sounds like something you'd have two football, let's go, Brandon. Yeah, it's the exact same cadence and everything. So the psychology, it seems, um, is really silly, and it's not something that I respect. I understand why people who have nothing going on in their lives 
view it as a form of entertainment and they get engaged with it in the same way that people play video games and watch pornography and do all the other modern hobbies. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's below the standard of what would be required of the type of men who could actually, you know, make an impact in the world and a positive change. You know, I remembered what I was going to say. Just like the disappointing politicians who, and, and the whites, the powerful whites whom you mentioned, like the uh, people who are rich and, and in the government or whatever, uh, he panders and caters and caves to the, the so-called left. I think Rolling Stone maybe did a hit piece on him and he disavowed the right-wingers. And just similarly, the, um, the practically every phony politician whom I've ever known of, aside from Trump to a, to a significant extent, um, has apologized for being right, basically, or apologized where they don't need to be apologizing. And they've catered and caved to the, what I call the liberals. So he's just like them. <laughs> Even though he became sort of a uh, a champion for some people, sort of a yeah. I mean, it's sad that he he was a champion, and <laughs> I, I don't know if he's going to have staying power. I don't know if he's going to continue yeah. to be useful. But um, I think, yeah. I mean, essentially, he and his producers and and the, the network that gave him a chance said, like, hey, we think we can use you. And uh, he said, sign me up. They put out the video, it got millions of views. Um, and then he's been kind of managing his PR. And I don't know, maybe he'll be in the top top 100 on the charts in the future. Maybe he'll disappear into obscurity. I mean, the story of the music industry is just people get used up and then they get spit out. I mean, look at, I remember, you know, Kesha. Uh, as, as an example of someone who was trying to go down that path of being the big pop hit. And she was just totally psychologically abused and controlled and ended up in the hospital. Just Amy Winehouse. I mean, there's so many different examples of people where it's, they, it's prostitution. I mean, they use you until they feel that your utility is over and then there's no, I mean, people talk about veterans in this country. If you go off to war, you come back, the VA is terrible. Trump did actually address some of those concerns, but um, you know, the VA is terrible and you don't get help and you end up homeless and drug addicted and so on. Um, you know, it's the same thing in the music industry. It might actually, you know, depending on your perspective, <laughs> better or worse, but it's like, it's a very, violent industry psychologically. I mean, it's not to say that they're literally beating people and attacking people, but in terms of the psychological state of someone who survives, you have to be extremely compliant. You have to be a yes man. You, when they say jump, you say how high. I mean, there is no freedom. There is no um, freedom of opinion or anything like that. So everything's very tightly controlled. So I don't know if he's going to be able to survive in that space and continue doing what he's doing. Uh, it's, it's, it's not known to me, but, um, yeah, the, the initial song, I, I just, I didn't like it. And I saw a lot of people on the right cheering it on. I didn't see, by the way, you know, he says like, I'm neither left nor right. It's like, well, your audience is right wing. Yeah. Like there's no Democrats who are like, yeah, I totally understand his message and I sympathize with him. The left just completely dismisses him as like, you know, he's, he's a crypto Trump supporter He's bad. They're very united in that sense, um, where, whereas the right seems to, 
you know, imagine if a, a left-wing music, like let's say Lady Gaga came out and said, you know, I'm really not right-wing or left-wing. <laughs> that would be a huge story. That would be right. like Lady Gaga betrays the left. Lady Gaga is That's a funny. secret fascist. You know, I remember the controversy with Taylor Swift. The yeah. reason why she was parodied as a fascist is because she refused to come out and state her political. She didn't say anything political. I know. And that's what they said. Oh, you must secretly be a conservative. <laughs> so our Aryan you know, goddess, the, right? The left, I mean, is in a is in a revolutionary religious mode. They are yeah. trying to consolidate their power and their morality, and because of that, they're engaged in the same thing the Catholic Church was engaged in when they were losing power, which is these witch hunts. You know, they're going on these crusades. I mean, that is what dominant religious structures do, is they try to enforce, spread, deepen, and intensify their existing networks. Whereas if you're marginal, all you're really trying to do is survive. You're like, hey, just leave me alone. Mm -hmm. I don't care what you believe. Just leave me alone, and I'll do my thing, and you do your thing. So these are the different strategies that you use when you're in a dominant position versus you're in a marginalized position. And, um, you know, so I think it's logical what's going on. And uh, for the people who are capable of understanding that, I want to share that insight, um, you know, just because it's it's not it's it shouldn't be surprising to us. Right. It shouldn't be. I, I know that people feel like, whoa, this has never happened before. Well, look back at the history of Christianity. Look at back at the history of Zoroastrianism, maybe even look at the history of Judaism um, or the history of, of Hinduism broadly. When religions take power and they're trying to consolidate the power, this is the playbook. It's really not that different. We've seen this before in history. Now it's with so-called liberalism, but we're in a very... Um, we're in a transition stage where I think that the morality of today, um, as much as it, it, it might seem dominant right now, I think most people have an intuitive sense that this is not the final stage. This is not the final form. This is not a stable form of morality. There's some things in here that are being experimented with, just like if you look at the French Revolution, you know, that was a, a very short form of government that very quickly went to Napoleon, who was an emperor, you know, and and he actually kept a lot of the liberal enlightenment ideas of the revolution. But he also instituted some things that we would consider right wing or authoritarian. Um, same thing with Lenin. You know, the communists before Lenin were very kind of like free love, free sexuality, anything goes. And then Lenin started introducing like, no, we're actually going to have monogamy and we're going to ban homosexuality and things like that. So um, this transition stage that we're going through, uh, I don't I think is going to it's not permanent what we have right now. And I think we should all be preparing for a situation where, uh, you know, we expect further changes and we expect some surprises down the line. We've been on for an hour, and I have Super Chats for you. Are you able to hold through a like three or four minute break? to sure, uh, take that. those and if anybody wants to call in you can call in appreciate that man then uh guys enjoy a brief break we are at the top of the hour we have okay i want to play okay holy war this is from the 2005 i think album low road from absolutely kosher records i hope you guys enjoy it your musical philistines will be right back with deep left jockle d l j o k l 
on YouTube and Twitter. Any other places, Chocol, that you're on that you want people to follow you? That's pretty much it for now. Okay. Yeah. An author and thinker and talker. So uh, hang on, guys. I'll be right back. Enjoy. What's that thing? Crohn's disease. I think that's why he had sounded like that. Thank you guys for bearing with me through that beautiful music, in my opinion. Okay. Is the, uh, is the s- singer. Um, Jockle, I have some super chats, and I think some of them are addressing you. I'm live with Deep Left Jockle. Are you there? Just checking your audio. I'm here. Okay. Um, addressing that Let's Go Brandon chant. Uh, I have a super chat that says, um, the origin of LGB, let's go Brandon, that makes it powerful is because that lady reporter was lying about what the people were chanting. So it represents a fight against fake news, just like Trump represents in his fight against the fake news. Was she lying? 
about Let's Go Brand? She was doing the best that, you know, the reporter has a job and she has a script and she has a morality and she has all of these structures. She doesn't have a choice over, you know, she can either say something awkward and maybe, and reporters are forced to do this all the time is they have to take something and they have to package it in a way that again is, is satisfactory to the producers. So I don't blame her for, you know, it was getting political in the stands. She's going to lose her job if she reports. Yeah. People really don't like Joe Biden out here. <laughs> um, and so she just said, oh, I think they're saying let's go Brandon. Because Brandon did win, right? Times non-political. I mean, you can find all sorts <laughs> of things where reporters are interrupted and they have to play it off in a way that, yeah, obviously they're you could say they're being deceptive, but I don't, I don't really view it in that way. I view that as kind of a, a girl who's scared to lose her job and just <laughs> trying to keep it. And so I, I think she's pretty sympathetic in that clip. But the the phrase, I don't know. To me, it's. Um, F Joe Biden is the real phrase right. and they are trying to obscure that. And so the real phrase is just like, that's all you have. It's just like, I hate this old man <laughs> who is put up by the Democrat party. Cause yeah. he's like the last white male Democrat. And uh, you know, he's supposed to be the moderate and everything. And, and I think actually a lot of his policies are pretty moderate if you really look at them. Uh, but you know, they, they don't have a, it's not a substantive political discussion. It's just like, I hate your tribal leader. You guys, I mean, it's the same thing as orange man, bad in my opinion. So that's why I view it as very lowbrow and very unproductive. Um, so I don't, I don't really sympathize with the message. Um, one person says that of that track of that song, Richmond North of Richmond, that it's kind of a communist song. Yeah, I mean, you can see that. And I make this argument that a lot of people who consider themselves right wing or nationalistic, oftentimes the intellectual roots of their moral arguments are left wing in nature, um, whether that's communism specifically. I also think you can look deeper into Christianity and see um, elements there of Okay, you know, where does the concept of a martyr complex come from? Well, the 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 first time that we find the instance of a, a virtuous martyr, I would say, you know, is possibly in the Judeo-Christian tradition. There may be other religions um, where that's also the case, but at least Christianity maintained, established, embellished the idea that if you are persecuted by the establishment, for having righteous beliefs that makes you even more righteous. Um, so certainly that is yeah. something. And, you know, you can have the Christians will debate internally. Does that mean that um, it's good to be a political martyr? Some of them will say yes. Others will say uh, you're misunderstanding Christ's sacrifice. And that's a completely different thing. Uh, but it's easy to see how one could lead to the other, or at least be misinterpreted. Uh, some super chats on Rumble. Spoiler alert says our politics and quote unquote culture, including the song Richmond, Rich Men North of Richmond, is now manufactured for us by the synagogue of Satan. I don't hate ethnic Jews, he says, but I know they're the enemy. Yeah, I mean, I think that, again, uh, if you look at who is in power and who is in control. I think it's a really, I think it's kind of a self-hating or like, 
I don't know, just hokey idea that, oh yeah, the Walton family and Elon Musk and all these people are controlled by this separate ethnic group and they're completely subjugated. Like that's a pretty pathetic perspective on powerful white men is that they're all controlled by this one ethnic group. Um, and I don't even believe this, like look at George Soros, you know, the idea that Jews have this very consistent internal cohesion not to say that Orthodox Jews, like within a sect of Judaism, that they don't have that sense of identity. But one of the reasons why George Soros is so hated is because of Benjamin Netanyahu. Benjamin Netanyahu, with his political connections all around the world with the conservative movement, and that's not just a conspiracy theory, that's a fact that when you have the National Conservatism Conference with Yoram Hazoni, like he's directly connected. Jared Kushner is directly connected. So a lot of these big conservative talking points that come out of Fox News, when you have Glenn Beck going on about George Soros this, George Soros that. Why is George Soros so hated? Because he's a personal enemy of Benjamin Netanyahu. Because George Soros doesn't agree with those extreme Zionist policies. Um, so, you know, to say that, oh, it's all these Jews, they just all believe one thing and they're all on the same team. And then the white people are so like, you know, Bill Gates is just like trapped in a prison somewhere and the Jews are controlling him. I think it's like really denigrating to white people to believe that. And I think it's also just factually not true as far as, um, you know, there are a lot of conflicts between, uh, you know, different types of Jews and different uh, beliefs among Jews that I think that's like a really, it's a really, I mean, it, it might be more relevant to like the first century AD in terms of you had these Christians and then you had these uh, establishment Jewish authorities who were in a struggle. And so that's where the quote originally comes from. I don't think um, it really helps us understand the present day. You know, uh, that make that reminds me, um, I started noticing the Jew thing around the 2016 with Trump's um, Trump's popularity and the the alt right came into um, people became aware of the so called alt right, which was kind of short lived actually, because they were got they got smeared after Charlottesville. But um, I noticed that a lot of the Jewish people, even the conservatives, Ben Shapiro, Dennis Prager, at first they really hated Trump. So it was like all of them, whether they were liberals or conservatives, they did not want Trump. Trump was speaking plainly from the heart like a simple man. He was not intellectual. He was just speaking the truth, the big picture truth as he saw it. And I was like, oh, <laughs> I thought Ben Shapiro and Dennis Prager were like pro-Christian and for like the country. But, and Dennis Prager kind of came around and Ben Shapiro maybe less so. But I started to notice... I wasn't even aware of all this Jewish stuff until around that time. So I don't know. I guess I guess I would uh, say that I don't think Trump was originally really a conservative. Right. I think when he started off, I think he was very secular. I mean, he had, he had a history of just not being thought of as a Christian evangelical. Right. Um, he was insulting John McCain. He was insulting George Bush. I like that. He was that. insulting <laughs> all of these people. And I think, yeah. yeah, if you're if you're Ben Shapiro or Dennis Prager, I think they see that as very threatening because they're very tied in with the Bush dynasty and with uh, neoconservatism. 
And Trump was pushing back on that. And obviously, then Trump made a bunch of deals. He's good at making deals. And now they claim to like him. Um, you know, just like Tucker Carlson claims to like him, even though we have that tape of him saying he hates Trump. So, you know, there's a lot of stuff that goes on in the background. Um, but, you know, my basic point is just to say, yeah, obviously, um, there are a lot of uh, Jews, American Jews, who are very interested in the state of Israel. I didn't hear the name Israel once, or they, I didn't know what the country of Israel was growing up. It wasn't part of my life. It wasn't part of my identity. Um, and for an increasing number of American Jews, they're fairly apathetic toward it. They don't necessarily hate Israel, although some percentage of them actually are anti-Zionist. Um, but George Soros as an individual has been pretty consistent on, in terms of his funding, his political activism, he doesn't like this ultra-Zionist, nationalistic, uh, persecution of Palestinians. And so he has funded opposition groups in Israel against that. So Netanyahu doesn't like him. And I'm just explaining. That's why, by the way, George Soros is such a popular figure to hate, hate on in yeah. mainstream conservatism is because of Benjamin Netanyahu as a personal vendetta. And he basically has given the green light for that form of anti-Semitism. You can be anti-Semitic, you know, when Benjamin Netanyahu agrees with it, basically. Uh, it's interesting that, uh, yeah, you're right. Trump wasn't particularly thought of as Christian or conservative. He was a New York liberal and got along with everybody and was pro, very pro-choice at one point. And then he said after he uh, had the grandchild, he became pro-life, but for the exceptions. And the, the draw for me for, of him was that he stood on the, the so-called controversial things that he said and didn't back down from telling the truth. Like, he didn't apologize. He finally didn't apologize. And I was so sick of seeing all these so-called Christian politicians like Rick Santorum say, I want black people to work. I don't want them to be on welfare. And that was considered racist. And he was well-meaning, but he denied saying that. He's like, I didn't say that. I'm a and so all these people were apologizing. And finally, Trump stood on what he was saying. And he was just a real guy. He was like a man among boys even making Ted Cruz look like a rhino, which he is. So it was well, I refreshing. Think, I think Trump was a rhino, but in, in the positive sense. Yeah. He was like, yeah, I'm running as a Republican, but I hate this party. Yeah. I hate everybody who's in it. I want to turn it upside down. If you don't vote for me, I'm going to run third party and destroy you people. And then the <laughs> Democrats are going to win. So it's like he was just, it was like the nuclear option. And yeah. so the way he came in, I mean, I think everyone can respect his attitude, his fortitude, his persistence, the fact that he ran for or he was going to run for president in 2000. So he had been planning this for at least 16 years, if not longer. I mean, just a smart guy yeah. um, with a really tough personality. It's hard not to respect his leadership skills. He was popular in television. So successful in a lot of things. You can say, well, he was bankrupt many times, but he's still rich. I mean, what is it about? Right. You can be bankrupt <laughs> a million times, but if you come out at the other end a billionaire, I mean, you're ultimately successful. It doesn't matter how many times you fall down if you get up at the end. So, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of personally admirable qualities in the fact that he went in and he said, well, I'm obviously not a Democrat, but I'm also not like, I'm actually not really a Republican. I'm running on issues that are really popular, like most Americans want to restrict immigration. Most immigrant, most Americans like the idea of being tough on crime. Most yeah. Americans 
want to bring back jobs from China. We don't want to over uh, ship all the jobs overseas. So he just was like, I'm going to have this populist platform, which was his plan again, 16 years ago when he was running for the reform party. <laughs> He's always had that idea. He implemented it. He executed, he managed to win. And then once he was in, basically he found himself surrounded by conservatives who kind of, you know, eventually wore him down and pushed him into that camp. And now he's pretty solidly in there and it's hard to get out. And once you're in there, you know, you're sort of stuck. And I think that's part of the reason he he lost in 2020. I think does YouTube allow discussion of uh, election denialism now? That's that's greenlit, apparently. <laughs> It might be a, it might be a bait and switch. I disavow all questioning of the 2020 election okay, for the cool. sake of my channel. Yeah, I was just checking. You know, I, I disavow as well. I was just checking if we get in that territory. But That's we funny. Can talk about other things. I have a few more super chats and a call. Do you have time, man? For the sure, let's do it. Appreciate it. Um, on Rumble, spoiler alert also says. Let's go, Brandon. Was a calling out of the mainstream news's willingness to lie to our faces. And he says, see the original video at the racetrack, which is the same comment that you we just basically just covered. Right, right, right. Um, evil is still real, says, what's the best, oh gosh, what's the best use for, for gas, in my car or on this guy? I just about it. Um, he says, is there a limit on how many books of his I can buy? I want to build a big bonfire. He wants to burn the books, book burner. Okay. Um, those are all the pertinent super chats. I will read your coffees, guys. I do see the coffees have come in, but first I want to get to Art in Ohio. Art from Ohio, thanks for calling and holding, man. You're live with DL Jockel is his tag on YouTube and Twitter. How you say his name again? Jockel, J O K L. How you doing? How you doing, Mister well, Jockel? Are you? you used to spell it differently. Yeah, I think the four letters is the simplest form, so we're going for simplicity. I like that. Go ahead, Art. Hey, what's up with my brother Hank? How's my brother Hank doing? I'm doing fine, that man. Appreciate it. Thanks for checking man, in. Man, you did you eat? Did you get something to eat this morning? I actually did. I ate some turkey. Okay. <laughs> okay. Put your arms up. Let me check your arms. Let me make sure I ain't none of them liberals. In, uh, <laughs> I'm not your clown. I'm not your performance monkey that you can make me. Perform in front of I gotta make sure my brother good in, in California <laughs> when I <laughs> How you liking this interview, Art? Man, y'all doing you doing pretty good, man. I'm I'm following along, man, at the guest. He uh he he's he got a good conversation with now. Y'all both y'all keeping keeping me entertained, so I don't have no problem with it. Right on. And uh look, I wanna give a uh, shout out to my uh late favorite musician, uh Tupac. With his with his song "Beards Around the Corner" or whatnot, shout out to Tupac or whatnot, and then uh, was that a reference I to Jewish people? Beards around no, the corner. No, no, oh, okay. Uh, uh, Tupac <laughs> had know. a song <laughs> "Death Around the Corner." Tupac had a song called "Death Around the Corner," and oh. I, I, I already art remixed it to "Beards Around the Corner." Beards. Okay. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, uh, so now what I wanted to ask the guest is: you said that. Uh, you said that the Repub the Republicans and the conservatives get they they views from the uh the Democrats. The Republicans do what from the Democrats? Get their views from they, the Democrats? 
Well, I, I guess, here. yeah, I mean, historically, all of the Republican platform today is derived from the Democrat platform of 10, 20 years ago, with the exception maybe yeah. of some of the free market principles. Yeah, they've accepted the gay thing, all kinds of women, <sighs> anti-racism. Uh, Thank you, Trump. <laughs> oh, no, it's, bef- <laughs> it's before him, though. I mean, I know that he kisses up to that. Like, he's very, he's very kind to everybody. But anyway, yeah, yeah. So, 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 so uh, it's crazy now that I'm now that I'm on here the phone. I, I hear what you're saying. I kind of get what you're saying, but I think you kind of like you saying nowadays they they're basically folding yeah to fold into the Democratic playbook. Yeah, I mean, I would say there's a larger struggle going on than just Democrat and Republican. I think it's happening around the globe. I think if you look at Russia. For example, there was uh, I follow kind of uh, Russian culture and music, and uh, there was a new Russian music video that came out today with uh, twerking. And if you turn the sound mm-hmm. off and you don't listen to the language, it looks like an American music video because they've got Asians, they've got black people. I mean, that's the direction that the whole world is going in. So it's not just a Democrat Republican thing; it's a wider global trend. Um, you know, again. The, the situation we have right now with these very specific narratives around racial oppression, gender oppression, I don't think this is the final form of this religious revolution. I think there are still changes yet to come. But I, I think it's too narrow to just say, oh, well, the Republicans are folding to the Democrats. That's just a subset of a much wider global phenomenon. So it's really bigger than that. And okay, and then with that, even with that little Russia thing, you said this, you said in that video, you seen Chinese people or whatnot. Well, yeah, Russia has always been a multi-ethnic empire um, for the last four centuries or something. It's actually just about as old as America. People think of Russia as a very old country, but ninety percent of Russian territory was not established um, until you know the the sixteen hundreds through the uh, the nineteen hundreds. So. Basically, uh, the same cultural pressures that we have here in America toward, you know, what we refer to as sexual liberation and, you know, gender equality and LGBTQ, all of those things, and including racial equity and inclusion, those trends are not just localized to a Democrat versus Republican struggle, but those trends are happening all over the world. You know, the question of why that's happening is really big. So you said that you said that you said they 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 following the the uh, tr- the, tr- the transgender thing and the what's the, what else you say about that? Um, I, you know, if you look at opinion polls of Russians and you ask them what do you think of not transgender people because that's a little bit more taboo, um, just as it was in America twenty years ago. But uh, if you ask them just about gay people and you say, do you have a negative opinion, neutral opinion, or positive opinion? There has been a significant shift among the Russian population as you go younger and younger in the generations toward acceptance of gay people, at least toleration or acceptance. The people who are against it are much more in the older generation. So that's the same kind of dynamic that we see in America. Russia is a bit more conservative with respect to sexuality than America is. But what I'm saying is they're headed in the same direction and it's part of a global trend, not just Domestic Republican versus Democrat. Okay, so them being they them banning gays from adopting kids 
And uh, that don't sound like that's uh, going with uh, what America's doing or what not. not. And not it was you have to understand the difference between the distance of a car and the velocity and its direction, right? So if you have two cars and one is five miles down the highway, the other one's 10 miles down the highway, you can say, well, look, one of those cars is farther back than the other. But if they're both headed in the same direction and they're both going at the same speed, then they're both going to arrive at the same place within five minutes of each other. So in terms of a larger historical perspective, rather than this myopic, oh, Putin is based, he, he banned gay marriage, <laughs> he banned gay adoption. It's like that's very short sighted yeah. when you look at intergenerational changes. I'm talking about cultural beliefs, not just whatever the legislatures do. Remember George Bush? Back in his term, he said Defense of Marriage Act. Right. right. That's where Putin is right now. He's doing his Defense of Marriage Act. Interesting. But you look a short time later and the Supreme Court shuts it down. So Putin's not going to be around forever. Uh, George Bush wasn't around forever. Things change quickly in this world. And we have to be prepared for that and not put all our chips in saying Putin's going to be the savior of Western civilization or Christian values or whatever, because he was a member of the KGB. I don't, I think okay. he's a very cynical actor. Okay. So, 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 so you trying to, you, I mean, I kind of get what you're saying, but it, it, it makes sense and it don't because simple fact that Putin don't only have four, uh, four years in to be a president or eight years to be a president. He's in there for as long as, as he's alive or whatnot. Yeah, that's so the same him, thing with Francisco Franco. So him, so him making, that, making that change or whatnot is him guiding his ship in the right direction. Within turn, America, with these four-year four terms and eight-year terms or whatnot, every time you get somebody else in there, they have a different views and different ideologies. What I'm saying with, with him reversing that uh, the gays not being able to adopt kids and them kind of being against the, the gay narrative or whatever, I don't know, but... I just know that Russia seems more Christian and uh, God-fearing more than America with the agendas that they're not willing to accept. They're not willing to go with the liberalism like America is or whatnot. And then I wanted to ask you, well, what's the, uh, you saying that uh, Russia always was this multi multicultural land? Well, I just never, I never heard of that. I always thought that they were pure, pure white, uh, white people or whatnot. And, uh, and uh, basically, I wanted to know what was what's the uh, ethnic breakdown in the, uh, their culture. Like, what's the percentage of the Asians that are in that are in uh, Russia or, or any of these other races that are in Russia? Sure. I mean, that's a really interesting question that most people ignore, which is the fact that um, Muslims are the fastest growing demographic in Russia. Uh, wow. They come from the Caucasus. They come from Dagestan, and they are. Uh, internally migrating within Russia. Under the Soviet Union, you needed an internal passport to move from one city to the other. You weren't just allowed to move wherever you wanted. Everything had to be approved by the government. So essentially, these people were contained to the Caucasus. But when Putin came in, communism ended, um, he decided that these people should have freedom of movement in order for the economy to grow, right? Because these people are providing cheap labor for the rest of it. He's also allowed, you know, workers from the rest of Central Asia and Kazakhstan to go in. So you have people like Alexander Navalny, who's thought of as a liberal in the West, but he's actually criticized Putin and before he's poisoned and everything, put in jail. But he criticized Putin's policies as, you know, we've got a demographic crisis where the ethnic Russians, the, you know, white uh, Russian speaking people 
uh, Christian historically are actually losing demographically to these Muslims and Caucasians, not Caucasians as a race, but specifically referring to Dagestanis, um, Kazakhs, and so on. These people are exploding in number, and they actually are 10% of Russia, and they're projected much like Sweden, France, England, all the ones that we say, oh, well, that's that's liberal, that's the West, we're decadent, so we lit in all these, lib uh, these Muslims, and they're going to take over Europe. The same exact statistics apply to Russia. Then 2050, um, Russia is predicted to have a Muslim majority. So wow. that might be off by a few decades there, but you can look up the statistics and verify for yourself exactly where they're at. Uh, but yeah, I mean, yeah. Russia historically, um, when it expanded from the area of Novgorod and Kiev, um, when it expanded eastward to Siberia, it encountered people who were not white. It encountered people who were basically Asian or Central Asian. And to the south, you know, you have Dagestani people who are just north of Azerbaijan. You can judge yourself if you think they're white or not. Um, but, you know, so, these people are not blonde haired, blue eyed is, is what I'm saying. So would that be no different than America just going ahead and just uh, making uh, Mexico American territory? With, I mean, just because we... I think we should do that. Well, uh, that that's I, uh, that's some that's a liberal talking point. I don't definitely support <laughs> yeah. that. Yeah, no, long, I think I think we made a mistake in uh, when we annexed Texas. We should have annexed the rest of Mexico, and the reason we didn't, of course, is because there were um, you know essentially people in the Senate who said we don't want all these Mexicans in our country. But I think uh, we should bring Mexico into an economic and political union with uh, the rest of America. We should, of course, do it with Canada, right? That's obvious, well, but um, <laughs> Mexico when, as when well. I'm saying, I, when, I when, when, I, when I say that, when I'm saying that is that with you saying that they have all these Muslims and these Chinese people or whatnot, what I'm saying with Mexico is that that wouldn't be no different than, of course, they're going to be uh, America accepting uh, Mexico as American territory or whatnot. That, I mean... That's already their land or whatnot. Uh, typically, they're not just going to move up out of that land if that's where they're they're uh, where, where they're from, or where they were born or whatnot. That just because you take over that territory don't mean that they're uh, natural born American citizens. Just like if I go, if I'm black and I go to China, am I Chinese? No, I'm black in China. You see what I'm saying? Unless you're so, unless uh, you're Israel Adesanya, then you actually have a Chinese heart. So if you follow MMA. Yeah, and w my thing is this: when you say that we should accept ex accept uh, these other nationalities or whatnot, uh, I'm trying to figure out like why don't like the whites in the in like the Europeans and even the Negroes over here in America, why don't they understand that it's a it's a it's a power move to these other nationalities, a power move to wipe you off? the earth or whatnot to take and steal resources from you or whatnot. Yeah. You know, I mean, uh, I, just y'all willing just hold up. Just because y'all willing to be accepted and try to feed and help everybody don't mean that another nationality is gonna do that for you. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, uh, I mean, and I just don't understand how y'all just think that everybody wants to work and be y'all's friend and y'all just so willing to get food off y'all's table and take from your own people and when y'all's own, your own people ain't even surviving, meaning the homeless in America. 
Right. I mean, I think there's a fundamental deception going on here when you say, you know, y'all white people. It's like white people do not conceive of themselves as an identity group. There was a movement in the South um, called white supremacy. That's a specific. It's not just a liberal talking point or something. It was these people said they were belonged to a specific church, the Baptist church, basically. They, they belonged to a specific political party, the Democrat Party. These people were extremely culturally homogenous, and they identified themselves as white because there were basically two groups of people in the South. There were the black people and the white people. And so they created this concept that from the political echelons of power, from the governor's office down to you know the local police department, we're on team white. And the reason why they had that ideology was because during Reconstruction, the North basically banned most Confederate soldiers from voting. So in effect, <laughs> most white men were prohibited from voting. At the same time, they enabled um, black suffrage. And so black people voted for the Republican Party because it was along racial lines. And that's where that ideology developed. But there's no other place in history before or since then where white people have thought of themselves racially as a political or identity cultural block, as an ethnicity. And there's a difference between the two. And so my argument would be with respect to Europe and America as well. When you say, well, you white people are giving away your stuff to the other people. No, it's not white people as a single entity, just like, you know, I argue against the idea of Jewish people as a single entity, but at least that's more plausible because they're a more tight, cohesive group. But white people certainly are not. Oliver Anthony is not giving stuff away. Okay, you know, I'm not giving stuff away. The average white person has no power. The people who are making the decisions, whether it's Angela Merkel or whether it's, uh, you know, the Tories in the UK, uh, whether it's, you know, politicians here in America, those politicians don't see themselves as, oh, we're white and we're part of the same group as all of those other poor white people, just because we all have the same skin color, that means we're on the same team. That's not actually of how course. elite white people think. Right. That's of true. But when I say, but when I say, and I and I when I say white people giving their stuff away, and I always like to use the term that with, with Jesse, be Jesse Lee Pierce be talking about, is that when we're white people came over here to America, uh, they built up the greatest country in the land in which is America would not wish to help with the Negroes or, or would not in these other countries or what I'm not saying they wouldn't, they didn't have certain parts that were, were good or what not, but always America has always been on the top or what not. And what I'm seeing is that for some odd reason, they got the, Oh, we made it syndrome. Like a, a, a black is going to get to the NBA. We, Oh, we made it. So, uh, let me go ahead and buy mama a $2 million house, my sister, my brother, and my cousin a, a $2 million house when you're only going to be in the league for so long or whatnot. And how are you going to be able to long keep take care of them, all them properties that you don't bought for all them people in your family for all these years? So it just don't make it, it just doesn't make any sense to me for whites and these blacks over here to have oh we made it oh we've made it syndrome when you haven't when you if you if when you got homeless whites and homeless blacks running around all over america and your own kids don't know how to don't know how to read or whatnot and ain't educated so you just in turn want to give up what you had built and your ancestors had built that's that's what i'm saying with that right it's a, it's I mean, a shame i 
It's a darn well, shame. I, <laughs> yeah, it's a darn shame. I agree with you, though, that that narrative doesn't make sense. But for some reason, it keeps getting peddled that, oh, white people mm -hmm. are, are the reason why they're giving things away is because they're too relaxed or they're too wealthy or, you know, they've made it or something. I've heard a lot of variations of this narrative and it doesn't make sense. And therefore, we should look at alternative narratives. My narrative is that the fact that, you know, mass immigration is happening, welfare is happening, liberalism at large is not happening because white people have this collective sense of like, oh, yeah, sure, let's give it all away because we don't care. You know, nothing bad will ever happen to us. I think those decisions are not made because the average white person has like this feeling of resting on their laurels or being relaxed or feeling like they have infinite wealth to give away. Those decisions are made by political actors at an elite level who see those actions as furthering and consolidating their power. The average white person doesn't want to give their wealth away to anyone, whether it's another white person or a black person or an immigrant or anything like that. The average white person, if they had the choice, I mean, that's why it's called taxes. It's not called charity. The government takes hey, it hey, from I, you. I agree with you. I definitely agree. The normal white, typical conservative white, definitely don't want to give their wealth away, just like the typical... Black Negro, they ain't trying to give their wealth away or whatnot when we only percentage, the percentage of us even have actual wealth. But I will say that up in New York and up in Chicago, they definitely want to give their wealth away or whatnot, just no, how they voted. Now, I, pre a, I appreciate you, whatnot, and I appreciate you, as always, for letting me get on here and talk to y'all, man. Thank you, Art. Take care, man. I catch y'all. Yep, yep. All right. I want to follow up on his last point there, which okay. is that the, the whites in New York and Chicago, he's just saying liberal whites. He's saying liberal whites want to give away all their wealth. That's not true. Liberal whites want to redistribute wealth from, you know, the white people that they don't like and distribute it to the enemy of my enemy. So they're <laughs> saying liberal whites feel threatened by white conservatives. White conservatives are scary. They're uneducated. They're religious. They're really frightening. And so the main enemy of the, yeah, I know you're a scary guy, man. <laughs> so the strategy is like, okay, we have all these white people with guns. How do we fight them? We're not going to beat them by beating them up or shooting them or something. So what we'll do is we will take the pie of wealth that we have in the country and we'll take more and more of it away from those people and give it to people we feel are going to be less threatening to us. So for the average white liberal, an immigrant, a black person, whoever, some disadvantaged class is much less threatening than these white conservatives um, who seem like, you know, they could actually because, I mean, you look at our Marines, you look at our special forces, the guys who actually could theoretically, I mean, I don't, again, January 6th, I don't know what we're allowed to say on YouTube, but I'm just saying historically, um, if you were to have some kind of coup or revolution, it would not be some random assortment of infantry it would be special forces it would be serious specialized extremely the top one percent of one percent i mean who did we send to take out osama bin laden it was a bunch of white guys with guns so if you're a liberal and you're trying to maintain the power structure your biggest threat really is some white guys with guns and so you're continually trying to chip away at their jobs at their money at whatever their cultural influence you're always trying to attack them under the guise of attacking white supremacy. But at the end of the day, the heads of, you know, again, the billionaire class 
a lot of white academics, even who controls the Democrat Party. If you actually look at um, the people who pull the strings, and again, you can differentiate between whites and Jews if you want, but um, a lot, a lot of like white people, a lot of white men actually still are very powerful, at least behind the scenes in the Democrat Party. And there's different ways to look at that. But yeah, I think we have to d dispense with this deception. It's a popular deception, but it's just not true. It's very superficial to say that oh white people in New York just want to give away all their money to black people. No, it's white people in New York want to take money from white conservatives and, and give it to black people, essentially, if we're going to bring it down to that basic level. That's so interesting that it's motivated in part by fear and hatred of the white conservatives. And it's sort of counterproductive to some of at least the voters, the people who have to deal with the results, um, because many of them are ending up finding out that the white conservatives are really closer to being their best friends or the best neighbors, you know, and these other neighbors who are coming in are not as neighborly or clean or, or whatever you want, less crime prone or whatever. Well, it depends on what you're talking about. So, you know, if you go to California, for example, there are towns that are 99% white in California. Every single one of your neighbors is white. Now, it's also expensive to live in California. It's yeah. expensive to live in those, uh, in those neighborhoods. But if you're a white liberal, more often than not, you're more educated. You have a higher income. You're more intelligent. You're going to be able to afford that yeah. more often than the white rural conservative. Um, so really, the game that's being played here is that you have white liberals who are thinking politically. They're thinking civilizationally. They're not thinking about, oh, no, the neighborhood <laughs> is going to become unclean because they can just move somewhere else. Yeah. Whereas I talked to I remember talking to a guy in West Virginia and I said, why are you a, a white nationalist or whatever? And he's like, well, I just want to live in a, a white country. I'm like, well, what does that mean? It's like, well, I want to walk outside and have a bunch of white neighbors. I'm like, dude, you live in West Virginia. You can't find a neighborhood in West Virginia that's like that. And he and but he said, you know, uh, but I want it for the whole country. And, you know, so it's like that scale of thinking where it's the local level, yeah. the neighborhood level, the national level. Liberals are very much thinking at a national civilizational level. Right. They're not thinking about, oh, no, if we let in immigrants, my neighborhood will be bad. They're thinking <laughs> about what is my status as a class across the globe? not just locally. And they see, yeah, the white conservative, the Christian as the biggest threat to their project, which is a religious project. It's not just a neighborhood cleanup project. Uh, I have a few super chats and a call. I want to see if I can plow through all of this. And uh, if you're able to stay through even possibly up to the top of the hour, Chockle. Okay. Uh, spoiler alert says conservatives just conserve whatever the left was championing 10 years ago. Homosexual marriage and race mixing are now perfectly fine to most nominal conservatives. Pathetic, he says. It's kind of like yeah. what you were saying about Russia. Well, that's and, true, but you know. I also think, I think people have been okay with race mixing for longer than the last 10 years. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, probably 70 years ago, it was pretty socially unacceptable. Um, spoiler alert, by the way, he, he's the one who said about the um, synagogue of Satan, don't hate ethnic Jews, but I know they're the enemy. And you mentioned... Something about, oh, Jews are disagree with each other. And so he says that you straw manned him, and that was typical. He never said 
some of the stuff that you were saying? Well, I mean, it's a short comment. You know, you throw out synagogue of Satan and I'm just riffing off of that. I don't know who you are. I don't know what your position is. I'm just responding to, um, you know, what little crumbs you're giving me. I'm trying to make something enlightening that. He uh, he also gives a super chat saying, let me tell you, he's he's quoting you. Some might say straw manning. He says, let me tell you why my people are a people, the Jewish people, and your people are not a people, the white people. Also, I am yeah. not the enemy. LOL. Lots of laughs. Yeah, no, I mean, it's it's true. If I said all humanity is one race, all humanity is one tribe, all humanity is one ethnicity, I can run around saying that all day. Does that make it functionally true? So if we look at functional markers of ethnic cohesion, we could study that. We could quantify that. We could ask white people, do you feel like your whiteness is important to your identity? Most white people will say no. If you ask Jewish people, is Jewishness important to your identity? More will say yes. So when I say, yeah, sociologically, factually, Jews are more of a people than white people are a people. That's just a statement of fact. If that hurts your feelings, I'm sorry. I, I, I know that that's the case. Um, blacks sometimes accuse whites of group thinking. And it's, it's really utter projection because they're the ones with the group thinking more than the, the whites by and large. And it's right. so I mean, interesting. It's, it's a, it's a self-reported fact that there are different groups of people and we can categorize them in different ways. I mean, you could ask Jews, do you think of yourself as a Jewish person? And there are actually different types of Jews who would answer yes or no at different rates, depending on whether they're secular Jewish, atheist Jewish, reform, conservative, orthodox. And then within those, you can ask how specifically do you identify with your specific sect versus others? The Orthodox Jews would say, no, you have to be Orthodox Jewish. The Reformed Jews would be like, ah, whatever you are, we're all Jewish, you know? So there are different, there's a diversity of answers that can be given to that. There are certainly a, a small number of white people who say, yes, I'm white. That's really important to me. I identify with that. The vast majority don't. And historically, that's been the case. You look at feudal Europe, if you ask them, do you identify as a white person? They'd be like, what are you talking about? I'm a Christian. I live in this area. I speak yeah. this language. I don't know what you're talking about. The only sense in which that's become relevant is because, again, specifically, there was a history of reconstruction where black people were basically given the right to vote. Most white people, because they were Confederate soldiers, were denied the right to vote. Mm. And so that was inverted with KKK, white supremacy. They said, Nope, we are making sure that never happens again. We're going to have the solid South. It was a populist ideology, but it was also specifically Baptist. It was Southern. They had, and you could even say the Scotch-Irish core of a Southern ethnicity. That was a very specific thing. That's a lot more specific than being like 800 million white people from Siberia to Alaska. We're all Irish, Italians and all them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) All right. Interesting, man. Uh, Interesting. Uh, I want to get to a call here in the last few minutes real quick. Brian in North Carolina has been on hold forever. Brian, thanks for calling, man. You're live with Jockle. Thank you. Thank you, Hake, and uh, good to speak with you, Jockle. Um, you said a lot of stuff today that I really had no idea about, but yeah. it 100% makes sense. Um, I, was, I had a question, though. You, you mentioned a couple times that you know you're putting out this information for anybody who can understand it. And I was wondering if you thought that, you know, a lot of the stuff that you said today was complicated or or difficult to understand. Certainly for for a lot of people. I mean, we have to understand the average IQ is 100. And that means that 50% of people have an IQ below 100. And if you have an IQ below 100, I mean, even with college admissions being lowered every day, that's still probably not enough to get a four-year degree. 
Um, you know, if you're listening, if you're understanding, if you're following along, uh, then, you know, you're smarter than at least half of people. So that's when I say most people, 51% of people can't understand what I'm saying. Now, if you're maybe, hey, Ugh. he's got a high IQ audience. Maybe they, they get it. Maybe <laughs> yeah, they're comprehending mixed. it. But I, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not familiar with you guys. So I just go in saying statistical average, 51% of people aren't going to get it. And I really am just trying to give an introduction. I'm not, I'm not trying to get super esoteric. You know, if you go to my YouTube channel and start watching videos, you might say, now this is very bewildering. I don't understand this. So I'm trying to prepare people. I would rather over over prepare people for something that's complicated rather than uh, surprise them and, you know, sneak attack with a bunch of vocabulary that they don't understand. So I'm just trying to mm -hmm. just trying to keep it simple as much as I can. So you think IQ has a direct correlation to the ability to understand? Well, that that is supposedly the intelligence quotient is a measurement of intelligence and intelligence and the ability to understand are pretty much synonymous in the way that I'm using them. Okay. All right. Well, you, you also, man, you made a bunch of good points today, especially the, and Hake, you made a point on top of his point that I want to comment on. Go you guys it. were talking about how, you guys were talking about how the liberal or the, the liberals, the white liberals are not, I can't remember exactly how it was said, but it was pretty much the white liberals were just doing it because they're, they're making the, the conservatives, white conservatives angry but you also said how the the liberals that are up there they don't really want to you know share their wealth and share their land which you're 100 percent right they don't and it kind of for me it kind of points out how the the left the white leftists if you want whatever you want to call them they're just like great pretenders because they pretending like they they do want to share this wealth and they want to share this stuff i'm talking about the people not like the higher up the, the upper echelon the stuff that's going on i'm talking about that Right, I'm talking about the actual people, you know, they go along with this, but when you see these videos of them saying, hey, you know, we'll help these people out, they go, no, 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 I don't want to, no, I don't want to do that, no, not here. You know, it really shows how how they're really just doing it to upset their other half that disagrees with them. Interesting. True. It's, but, it's, uh, yeah, take your, your reconnaissance, two devils fighting, man. Well, your your reconnaissance that on Jocko here, in the words of art, really brought things into fruitation. So <laughs> I appreciate the show. Thank you, man. And uh, I wish I well, man. Take care. Thank you, Brian in North Carolina. You as well. Take care. Later. Bye. Um, I appreciate you uh, coming on, Jocko. This was was fun, especially in this second hour here when we got more back and forth. Uh, thanks, man. Any closing remarks? No, it was good. I'm glad. I was really worried because I was having these technical issues. I was I like, know. it's gonna, it's gonna be an issue. But I think, uh, I think it sounds like we were loud and clear, and uh, that's a hundred percent success for me. So I appreciate it. Maybe we'll do it again. We had some technical issues on our end, so there was a little bit of hit and miss at the beginning there. But, um, but I, yeah, I thank you again, uh, Justin in Fullerton, California, wanted to comment on the right white race block. Call me tomorrow or call next time when Jockle is on again. Thanks again, Jockle. Take care, man. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. Guys, uh, this has been the Hake Report. I'll have to get to the rest of the Super Chats. Carver, Barf Boy, Zuzu C. Um, but we got to end. I got to end the show. Thank you guys for bearing with me through that. I, I like the guest. Um, the beginning might have been a little rough.
But anyway, enjoy this track. This is Children, Children, and it has a female girl vocalist, but it's by Donut Man, Rob Evans from the 2001 album Praise Him. It's a Christian song, guys. Adios, America. I'll sit with you through it and enjoy it with you. Here it is. Bye. Everybody. Yeah. yeah. This is going to be great fun. <laughs> children, children, come and listen. Come and hear our Jesus love. Sacred code. Children, children, come and see him. Come and see how Jesus loves. Children, children, come and touch him. Come and touch our Bible Lord, there's nothing better than your love. Indeed. Come and bless us with your love. Adios, America. Adios, guys. See you tomorrow, hopefully. Bye.